Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to the In the Clouds podcast. My name is Bobby Tishy, along with my co-host Cole Fisher. I almost said my co-host Cole Fisher, which would be accurate. He is my co-host, along with my should, co-host. I think we should audible to that. I kind of like it. That's yeah. my new title. <laughs> and uh, we are joined today by our very special guest, Susan Prater, who's a principal marketing consultant at Lev. And uh, before we dive into that, just a kind of a brief recap of uh, the first few episodes, we've been going through a series of how to implement Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And today, what we really want to focus on um, with Susan's help is migrating from your current ESP as well as warming of your new IP or IPs and why that's important and why it's uh it's really pivotal to make sure that you get the most out of Marketing Cloud as you're migrating to it. So, um, Susan, if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief background of yourself and kind of your career arc and how you've gotten to where you are, it'd be great. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot, Bobby. So I've been uh, in the marketing space now for, goodness, over 20 years now, uh, spending a majority of my time uh, client side and then about five years over at Salesforce as a marketing consultant for the marketing cloud. And then the past couple of years here at Love doing the exact same thing, which is getting my clients excited about all things digital marketing. And I'll throw in there uh, just to add, uh, I got to be a marketing consultant at Salesforce when Susan was there. And uh, we had all these all hands calls and things like that. And, you know, usually you multitask and you kind of, you know, listen in and, and glean what you can. Um, Susan was one of those voices that when she spoke up, you kind of like stop and perk your ears up a little bit. And you're like, oh, because this is going to be good. I know this much. So I'm excited to have you, Susan. Well, thanks a lot, Cole. And thank you for sucking up. it's a true story i robbed half of what i know about ip warming from susan individually (laughs) and and so kind of like i mentioned what we really wanted to have uh um, Susan on the line today was to kind of talk through all of the different elements of IP warming and migrating over from one esp to another um and kind of the 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 whole portion of it. I think that uh, a lot of times when um, we're having these discussions with prospects or customers, that the first thing that comes up is what what is IP warming. So I think that's probably a really good good place to start. Um, Susan, would you mind just giving us an overview of, of what IP warming is, why it's important, and the, the specific things that need to be done to be successful? I certainly can do that. So when you think about IP warming, we do it because when you get a new IP, it has no reputation at all with any of the ISPs out there. The ISPs are things like Yahoo, Hotmail, Gmail, AOL. They don't know your IP at all, so they're a little leery about it. So you have no reputation. When you establish reputation, you want to have good reputation so that those emails are delivered to the inbox, whereas if you have a bad reputation uh, with the ISPs, those emails are going to be routed to the spam folder, or even worse, they're going to be not delivered at all, and that's called blocking. 
We also want to, when we warm up, we're going to do it slowly and gradually over time. The ISPs, again, don't want to see big spikes. They want to see things slowly, no more than doubling your volume week over week. As you're going through this IP warming process, what are kind of some of the typical um, pushbacks you get from customers? Oh, a lot of times it's nervous about what kind of content do I need to use? Do I have enough content? Am I able to get information about my subscribers from the old ESP? Because we're going we're gonna to talk about a little bit, I'm sure, about who we should be sending to initially. Sometimes there's little worries about that. The other thing sometimes they worry about is they purchase lists and uh, they know they probably shouldn't be doing that and they're worried about how that's going to impact their IP warming. And probably the other thing is their domain reputation. While most of the ISPs look at your IP reputation, some of them, especially Gmail and the Microsoft uh, group of ISPs such as Hotmail and Live.com and MSN.com, they also consider domain reputation. So that's usually the, the part between the at sign and the .com or .org. And they also consider the reputation of your domain. And that's because in the past, spammers out there would just uh, spin up new IPs whenever they trash their current IP reputation. Gmail and Microsoft now have realized that it's harder for brands to spin up new sending domains. So they also start now looking at the reputation of your brand's domain. Great. And as you kind of kind of mentioned it already about kind of migrating over from their current system, I think that's a big part of this too, as we think about IP warming. Um, a lot of folks are coming over from a current email service provider, um, whether it's on the Salesforce platform or it's not. Um, there's a number of things to kind of think about as we as we think about those migrations and the approach to them, especially, I think, you know, and Susan, um, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with this too, is how, how do we make sure that nothing, there's no downtime essentially between these different um, email campaigns and kind of going through that. And so one thing that um, is really important to do, like when we're going through that process of, you know, we've decided to go with marketing cloud, we've kind of started down that implementation timeline and uh, really going through all of the different campaigns, automations, any kind of um, API-related triggers that we might have set up in the current instance, and really just completely audit those and figure out what we're migrating over to Marketing Cloud, what makes sense to do it, and then if there's a good, to your point, Susan, a good candidate or two to use as the IP warming. <clears throat> and so that can kind of help us build out that cutover plan and strategy. Um, typically, we don't we don't want to have everything come over at once because it's not possible really to do all at once. Um, especially, we don't want any downtime. Um, but something that we were talking about uh, on a uh, previously, um, Susan, you were mentioning the the kind of the reengagement prior to IP warming. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about that and the strategy of um, almost kind of making sure who's engaged prior to really moving over to marketing cloud? Oh, most certainly. You know, the one thing a lot of times brands forget is that they have their subscriber base is growing, 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 but not everyone is always engaging with their emails for whatever reasons. They, they're done purchasing. They may have changed email addresses. And unfortunately, if brands forget to do some reengagement campaigns to actually know who still wants to receive their emails, there is a risk of bringing over 
email addresses that uh, have been abandoned and have uh, turned into spam traps. So it's important before you start bringing over email addresses over to your new ES, it's to do a re-engagement campaign to make sure people still want to receive your email. You'll still save a lot of uh, addresses. A lot of people are still going to be interested, but there are going to be some, for whatever reason, no longer want to receive it. So let's not bring those over. They can always resubscribe later. We want to, again, start out on a best foot when we're doing IP warming, so we want to bring over everyone who still wants to hear from you. And Susan, you mentioned a, a term I'd like to expand a little bit more on. Can you mention uh, a little more about spam traps or what we call honeypot emails? What, what is the concept behind that? Yeah, so the uh, internet service providers, the ISPs, again, the Yahoo's, Gmail's, Hotmail's, when they see an email address be abandoned in their system where someone is no longer logging in and clicking on emails and it's basically gone dormant, they will at a point convert it into a spam trap. Initially, they will start uh, any emails that come into it, they will uh, hard bounce them to see if the brand will uh, move them to a status where they're no longer sending to them. When a brand doesn't do that for whatever reasons, because uh, again, we uh, some brands like to hold on to email addresses. At a point, then the ISP convert that email address into a spam trap. So a spam trap is something that doesn't open or click. And for the ISPs, when someone keeps sending to a spam trap, they know that they have poor list hygiene and uh, will start penalizing them by potentially routing all their emails to legitimate email addresses to the spam folder or stop uh, delivering those emails as a way to penalize them. Yeah, it makes sense. And so as marketers, we kind of inherently know that, you know, a, a subscriber that's 6, 12, 18, whatever months of zero engagement uh, should typically be kind of let go of at some point anyways, right, in some, some form or fashion. But this is a, kind of an instance where even though we know what is best practices, a lot of marketers are continuing to, to keep these subscribers as though they were engaged customers or prospects uh, and will continue to send them um, you know, any, any type of messaging that they can. However, it's coming back to bite them because now these, these ISPs, these domains know that this is nothing more than uh, an empty shell of an old subscriber that is no longer engaged with them. And not only are they now violating best practice, um, but they're really putting themselves into a trap with these domains in terms of deliverability. You summed that up nicely, Cole. Hey, learned everything I know from you, Susan. High five. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so as we're kind of going down that path of, you know, most engaged subscribers coming over to the new IP address, um, I think that to your guys' point, something we could probably spend a whole podcast on um, in a future episode is – uh, you know, quantity versus quality, right? I think that um, for some reason, there are still marketers out there that feel like the, the bigger that their list size, the, um, the better it is. And granted, if those are all great um, subscribers and people who really want to hear from our brand, absolutely. But a lot of times there's opportunities for us to kind of dwindle down what's there with ongoing re-engagement campaigns. So yeah, I, I think it really gets down to brands taking the time to actually analyze the value that these lesser engaged subscribers bring to them. How much revenue are they bringing in versus a very engaged subscriber who's not opening but clicking? 
and it's, it's interesting with some of the clients I've worked with in the past, when we ran some numbers, we found out that these lesser engaged people were not bringing in the dollars that, the, you know, it was almost the 80-20 rule where 20% of their subscriber base is bringing in 80% of the revenue. And when you think about it, no matter which uh, email service provider you're using, you're paying for each and every one of those emails you're sending out. So when you start totaling up all those people that you're sending to who aren't opening your emails, you're spending a lot of money reaching out to people who aren't engaging with you. So running that re-engagement campaign will certainly help you kind of call down those, the list and focus on those that do really want to hear from you, as well as boost your reputation with the uh, ESP or the ISPs out there, as well as increase your open and click rates. Yeah, that's really interesting, Susan. And I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head there. We're, we're this, we have this preconceived notion as marketers that more leads, more numbers, higher volume of emails just translates to more revenue, bottom line. Um, and that's a really tough conversation. And I feel like you handle that conversation really well with a lot of customers. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a towing a fine line of you have to kind of do a paradigm shift of how we're thinking about things um, because, you know, we're used to this, this one-to-one correlation of more equals more, more revenue from more leads, right? But we, right. Have to, we have to really back into this conversion of, well, here's what it actually costs to have these. And here, not only the, the actual, like, fiscal cost, but here are, like, the risk assessment of, of what happens should we find ourselves with some of these spam trap emails. So it's an interesting conversation. Um, it, and I don't know, do you feel like a lot of customers are, are – um, open ears when you have that uh, conversation because it's, it's to me it sounds like it's more of a matter of um, this paradigm shift of learning uh, this new mode of, of how this engagement works rather than you know this old thought of one-to-one more revenue from more leads. You know I think that that paradigm still is out there and a lot of brands still think as you're just saying you know more more email addresses equals more revenue and unfortunately, until they really dig into their own data to look at it, it it's not the truth. And uh, to also understand that if people really want to buy your product, they're going to find you. You know, just because they're no longer subscribed to your email does not mean they're going to purchase from you. They're going to find you, whether it's through, you know, search with uh, Google or walking into your store. So, again, it's really let's talk to those that really want to hear from you and the rest, they're still going to find you and they're still going to buy from you. But again, it's, it's having the courage to, to let go knowing that at the end of the day, it's going to help you overall as, as a marketer to get your message into the inbox. Cause if you get that bad reputation, those ISPs are going to shut everything down and you won't be able even to talk to those that do want to hear from you. Yeah. There's really no undoing that when you fall into that trap. Um, but yeah, this, this lean and mean model of better performing, higher engaged uh, leads. It, and it also, it's not just losing leads necessarily, because these can become later, you know, very good later on um, ad audience leads and things like that, uh, that it's not a total loss, but trimming the fat is really, uh, really key for us when we're, we're coming into an IP warming discussion. I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah. So as we think about kind of where we kind of go throughout that process, right? So let's say we've got the IP or the uh, re-engagement on the current provider. And then uh, we've built out our cutover plan and strategy and our IP warming plan. Um, and certainly as part of that is going to be some dual sending. So we are going to have um, some, some time um, where we're sending from our current platform as well as Salesforce Marketing Cloud as we get going on the new IP or new IPs. Um, and so uh, as we're kind of going through that process, there's a couple of things that we, could, we will need to be doing. But as we start sending 
Um, Susan, would love to hear kind of the typical timeline of how long IP warming takes just for one IP address for argument's sake. Um, and then uh, we'll kind of go through that process of dual sending from there. Yeah, sure. IP warming typically takes at a minimum about four weeks to, ascend, to establish your sender and reputation identity. Typically, maximum deliverability is achieved in about four to six weeks. If you are a very, very large brand with a very large subscriber base into the millions, it may take a tiny bit longer, but on average, expect about four to six weeks to really fully warm your IP address. Got it. And one thing that we talked a little bit about this on uh, on one of our previous episodes of having a different domain or uh, private or subdomain um, between your old instance and your new instance. And so um, one thing we were talking about was just the fact that it's really important for there to be a separate domain altogether that we're sending from on uh, Salesforce Marketing Cloud as we uh, migrate to it. So that way we can better monitor deliverability. I'm curious if you've ever had any kind of scenarios where someone decides, you know, we've got to stay with the same domain, even though we, you know, it's not recommended and kind of what happens as a fallout from it. Oh, that's a really good question. I've, Usually, you know, the brands I've worked with have been pretty good about setting up a new subdomain. So think about, let's say, if your old subdomain was email.brand.com, and then as you start uh, warming your IP, you're now using perhaps e.brand.com. That, again, helps with the IP warming. You still have that brand reputation from your top-line domain, that brand.com. But again, having those different subdomains uh, just assist in, in tracking how you're performing uh, from your old emails to your new ones. Again, because we're going to be focusing on a totally different set of people at the outset when we do our IP warming. Gotcha. And it's it's great to hear that most are pretty amenable to it. I think that, I you know, I wish that they were as amenable to the domain conversations they were to the not sending to bad subscribers or unengaged subscribers, but unfortunately that's not always the case for sure. Um, and so as we kind of think about that, you mentioned kind of ramping up over that four to six week timeline and, you know, maybe longer based on your subscriber size. Um, when you say like ramping up, what, what do you really mean by that as far as the, the actual sending itself? Most definitely. So when we first start sending that first few weeks, we want to try to send to the most engaged subscribers or users that you have. Because again, this is, a, we're, this is our first time with the uh, new IP. We want to have our best foot forward with the uh, ISPs out there, the Gmails, the Yahoos, the Hotmails. So we start out that first few weeks, the first few weeks sending to the most engaged, that being, let's say week one, your 30-day clickers. Week two, then we're going to start sending to your 60-day clicker. So those who have clicked an email in the past 60 days. And then let's say week three, we expand the, the group now out to those that have opened an email in the past 30 days. And week four, those that have opened maybe to the, the past 60 days. So we're starting with your very, very, very engaged because they are going to open and they're going to click. And those opens and clicks are very important to demonstrate to the ISPs that people are engaged. And then we slowly work our way out to your lesser engaged. And as far as the ISPs are concerned, they're actually kind of providing at least a baseline for what they think um, we should be sending to them, correct? Yes, there's actually a, you know, there's, yeah, I guess if you Google, you can find different uh, of the ESPs out there, the email service providers, they all have guidance on how you should start warming. Typically, uh, Gmail and a lot of the other ISPs are pretty uh, 
amenable. They can accept up to 20,000 emails per day on an IP as you're warming. I have found through experience that uh, Microsoft domains, that being Hotmail, Live.com, MSN.com, Outlook.com, they can be very, uh, I don't know, antsy at times. And I found I had better luck starting out with about 5,000 emails per day for IP, as well as also Verizon Media Group, that being now AOL, Yahoo, and Verizon. They also, uh, I've been finding, starting out with a lower send volume initially, around again 5,000 per day, seems to help uh, get better inbox placement and engagement there, instead of seeing things being blocked or inadvertently routed to the spam folder. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and beside, you know, just the uh, volume thresholds from each of these domains, uh, what do you feel like, I mean, are, are, are just the most fickle ones? So who are the most uh, commonplace uh, areas, you know, issues to watch out for? So if you don't have, you know, the, the high engagement right off the bat, or you don't have subscribers that are um, more likely to open and click by week two? Like who do you typically run into problems or who do we see people run into problems with in terms of domains? Yeah, I, from my experience, I have seen problems at, again, Microsoft. Now, uh, I, some of my peers will say they have no problem at Microsoft. It's really hit or miss. Uh, Gmail, I've had, knock on wood, continue to see good luck there. However, again, some brands uh, have run into issues at uh, Gmail. Verizon Media Group, lately they've been a little bit of a thorn in my side. In the past, they haven't. But again, they're always changing their algorithms. So it's it's always hard to know what now they're, they're weighing in. Some uh, of them out there I've seen with uh, like AT&T and their cadre of uh, domains, that being PacBell, AT&T, Southwest Bell, and the sort. Sometimes they will initially block your emails. That means they, they receive it, but they don't deliver it to the uh, user. They may block it for a couple days and then release that block on their own. It's just every ISP does a little bit things differently. So when I see blocking at any of the AT&T domains, I tend not to get worried and I just kind of keep an eye on them and we keep sending and usually within a few sends, the block is lifted. The other ones, sometimes you need to take remediation uh, with the ISP sending an email to their postmaster explaining that you are a new IP address and uh, you're trying to establish reputation by sending to your most engaged. And that's always a fun job, right? Being the one to try to remediate all those issues. Yes, it, it can be. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's helping you know the brands you know establish a new reputation. So that's why it's really important to try to, if you have the data, send to your most engaged first instead of just sending to a random pool. Again, if you have done your re-engagement campaign before you bring these email addresses over into your new USP, that will also bode well because then you're not sending to hard bouncing emails, which are invalid email addresses or to spam traps. Yeah, that really just... That helps you start out on a good foot. Yeah, that really just echoes the point about that, that trimming the fat um, sentiment that we brought up. Um, and are, are there certain you know practices that... Um, that a customer can take prior to moving over to a new ESP and new IP addresses? Uh, again, it really goes back to having, uh, making sure your house is in order and having a clean list of subscribers that are also engaged, doing that re-engagement campaign, also making sure that you're suppressing hard bouncing email addresses so you don't bring over invalid email addresses. I've had some 
IP warm-ups where they just sent over everything and didn't call out the uh, invalid email addresses. So I was sending to an email address that wasn't even valid, which doesn't bode well with the ISPs. And as we're kind of going through that that process, uh, there are a couple things that are important to keep in mind from a activity and engagement standpoint. So as we're going through that IP warming, and even for a period of time after, while you've got access to both systems, um, are two things. One is syncing unsubscribes between those two. So just for argument's sake, let's say we're uh, migrating from responses over to Salesforce Marketing Cloud for email. And uh, we're going to have responses for the next six months, but um, we're going to be off of it in the next three months. Um, we'll still need to sync those unsubscribes. So people can always go back to emails that were previously sent to unsubscribe. Um, we'll need to pull those out of that other system um, to make sure we're, we're being can spam compliant. Um, so it's not a, you know, a recommended thing to do. Really, it's a legally required thing to do to make sure that we're honoring those unsubscribes as we transition systems. There shouldn't be any, um, any detriment to the subscriber element of it. Um, the other thing is the engagement activity. So kind of what we've been talking about, about re-engagement and making sure people are staying engaged and maybe retiring certain people um, based on their engagement is having that open and click data in addition to unsubscribe data come over um, from that other system um, to make sure that we're getting that full picture of what's over in marketing cloud as well. Um, so as, as we you know stop sending from the old platform, that necessarily isn't it. Our job isn't done for a period of time afterwards. We need to make sure that uh, we're, um, we're doing so on the unsubscribes um, specifically. One, one thing is, you know, Susan, I know that um, you and, and Cole for sure have been doing this for a long time. I'd love to hear like the best IP warming experience you've had um, and the worst IP, IP warming experience you've had. No, no names. We don't need to throw anybody under the bus, um, but just interested in your experience. I know the one that comes to mind, it was my very first IP warming experience when I started working at Salesforce as a marketing consultant. And that was one of the things that as you started in the marketing consulting world is you, you started out doing IP warmings. And this one, I don't know how I ended up with it. It was a uh, international sender that had about 20 IP addresses we had to warm up. Uh, we had, they wanted to warm up during a uh, the month of December and January, which I strongly advised against because during the holiday season, all brands are amping up their sending volumes. The ISPs are on high alert. And so it's the most difficult time to warm, but the client still wanted to warm then. We had an aggressive plan. They also had certain limitations that we couldn't send on any holidays. Uh, any global holidays, so I had to go through and try to find every holiday for every country that they had subscribers in. And when I built out their plan, where again, we're starting out with a certain volume and each week we are doubling it by uh, domain or by ISP. I gave them the plan, they said, not a problem. We started sending that first week and it was immediate blocking. I saw all these hard bouncing email addresses and we had talked up front about bringing, give me only your good email addresses. They said, well, we couldn't quite make the numbers that you were suggesting, so we just gave you all of our email addresses, clean and unclean. So all of a sudden, we're now sending two bad email addresses that were hard bouncing. Uh, we had to stop the IP warming plan, uh, let the IP kind of chill for about a month to help kind of reset it, and then start all over again. So that, I think, was the, the worst one, but I learned so much from that, and uh, I will never, ever forget it of what not to, uh, for a brand not to do. 
<laughs> I remember uh, as a, we'll just kind of phrase it as a large flower company uh, when I was uh, still at Salesforce and we were implementing and they had been known as spammers for a really long time. Uh, one of these uh, companies who sent two, three emails all day, every day um, to their subscriber base. And so the different uh, providers out there had started to be really strategic with how they blacklisted them. And for those of you don't, who don't know um, what blacklisting is, it's essentially where you cannot send um, at all. Um, you can try, but nothing's going to get through. And the more you try, the, the better or the worse off you're going to be. And so uh, the, the two biggest holidays of the year for these folks were uh, Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, obviously flowers, right? And so the two weeks before each of these holidays, while we were implementing, because they were still just being a terrible sender, um, they got blacklisted. So their revenue oh. was just completely hit. And I remember I was on the phone with uh, their their legal counsel. I think it was like their senior vice president of, of legal or something like that. And uh, he said, um, who do I need to pay to get off <laughs> of this blacklist um, to make sure I can send email. And that's the thing, right? You can't, there's no one you can pay. There's no way around it. Um, it is truly a, uh, a permission based type of scenario. And so, you know, and, you know, Susan, I'm sure you have stories too of people who have gotten blacklisted or, um, you know, have gotten off to a bad IP warming start and to dig yourself out of that is a really a Herculean task. It is, it, it is, and I've had uh, well-established brand, brands also have those problems during uh, their highest season for revenue. But, you know, it, it really goes back to list hygiene and also understanding the ISPs out there, they have customers that they want to take care of and give them the best mm -hmm. experience using their email system. So when you think about Gmail or Hotmail, they're protecting their customer base. They don't want those people to defect and go over, let's say, jump from Gmail to Hotmail and the sort. So they're trying to protect their own people. And a lot of times the brands forget that and say, why is Hotmail being so mean to me? And it's because they're trying to protect their own customers. So it's, you know, it's a love-hate relationship there for sure. Yeah, definitely. The one last thing I wanted to mention as we're kind of thinking about IP warming and the migrations is uh, should marketing KPIs or even, you know, revenue KPIs uh, be adjusted a little bit to account for a migration? So, you know, I typically get a 10% click rate and, you know, 4% conversions on my emails. Um, should we think about kind of readjusting those or kind of um, garnering expectations a little bit as we're going through that process? Oh, I definitely would say so because, you know, as we are migrating over with some of those, you know, inherent blockings or spam foldering that we see initially as you were warming an IP, those emails aren't going to get through. So you might could see a slight decrease in your revenue as well as your open and click rates. But that's why we want to try to lead with our most engaged so we can quickly establish reputation out there. So it is important to make a note of that as you're, especially at the end of the month, you're looking at your revenue numbers as well as your email engagement numbers to, to flag that as this was something different and this should improve as we uh, continue through IP warming and get everyone migrated over to the new system. There are a couple other questions that I had for you. So we'll definitely have to have you back and talk through some other elements too, like ongoing deliverability. How do we manage that? What are some good platforms to do it? Um, how, uh, how and when should we look at multiple IP addresses versus just one? 
um, all those different things. So really appreciate your time, Susan. And we'll, we'll definitely circle back for another deep dive into deliverability and ongoing monitoring and things of that nature. But um, we'll go ahead and uh, transition to completely unrelated. And uh, I'm going to actually, Susan, I'm going to have you start. I'm going to put you on the oh. spot. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I, I'm drawing a total blank right now. Uh, completely unrelated. Tell me, well, completely unrelated about what? Anything about, about email? Any, anything about anything. It doesn't even have to be about email. Oh my gosh. Last time we ended up talking about Bobby's Seinfeld socks, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which is the best show ever. Um, I think that's going to be a thing. It's probably because Seinfeld's probably going to get mentioned to every episode. That really should be a goal. <laughs> well, their goal, Seinfeld's goal was to have what? Um, George wear the same pair of sneakers, have a Superman reference in every episode. Yep. Yep. I don't know that our writing is creative enough for that, but <laughs> we'll have to get better writers. Yeah, these guys are the worst. <laughs> Only their special guests are any good. Yeah. Susan, where do you live? I live in beautiful, sunny Michigan. So I'm on Eastern Time, and uh, the sun is out, and it's supposed to actually get into the 60 degrees finally. I think spring is finally here, and I'm going to be able to start uh, working outside uh, on my patio and uh, solve people's uh, email marketing challenges while enjoying uh, beautiful weather. Nice. Good deal. Uh, Cole, what do you got for Completely Unrelated? Uh, well, right now, so we're, we're in uh, Detroit area, Austin. Uh, I'm actually in Seattle right now. Um, and I was kind of thinking, so like full disclosure, obviously we're doing this remote. We're doing this um, uh, via a, a conference software, Zoom. Um, and I've always been kind of honestly frustrated. I think Zoom is probably the, the one that I have the least amount of problems with. But I feel like I just always have issues with conference software. So like basically until Salesforce comes out with like conference cloud or something like that, we're <laughs> always going to have some sort of an issue. Granted, this, this call, we've, been, we've just been fine. Um, but I, I feel like when I was at, when I was at Salesforce, we tried to do the, the hangouts migration um, and without fail more than half the time on whatever call we were on, somebody either didn't have audio um, could hear but couldn't couldn't speak back or something like that. Just always had issues. I, I feel like I, I don't know why there's because this has been around for what a good dozen years. This this industry, the uh, the uh, virtual conferencing. Yeah, they uh, still. It's you know it's funny is um, uh, one of the larger uh, conferencing companies uh, was one of my customers way back when, and uh, it was really interesting because I got to go uh, to their offices and um, I got to meet their product team and all that kind of stuff and um, they it, it, it was very much not based on like user feedback of how they kind of improve their products. Um, like one thing that, you know, Cole, you and I were just talking about the other day is I would love for there to be a transcription service as part of mm-hmm. any conferencing software, right? So um, anytime I feel like I'm taking notes, I'm missing out on the conversation um, or, or kind of thinking of the next question. So it'd be so cool to kind of have that laid out. Um, but no, I, I agree. I think Zoom has been really good. Um, one of my favorites for sure. And then um, I actually, the, uh, um, I actually don't mind uh, on, uh, for being on the go too. What's really nice is that Zoom will automatically put in like the mobile, you know, they'll put in the commas. So it waits a couple seconds and automatically put in your meeting ID. Um, so it's, it's been pretty good so far. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I would say I've, I think I've enjoyed Zoom the most, too. It's the, the easiest to use uh, for the most part, unless there's a group of us trying to start a call and we don't know who, who has uh, user rights to actually record it. But other than that, I find it uh, very user-friendly and very intuitive. That's a hypothetical, of course, right, Susan? So, yeah, <laughs> um, I've seen it happen with the three of us. <laughs> yeah, so I I remember about I think it was five years ago or so uh, there was I think it was called Uber Conference or something like that. Uh, but I thought it was like the disruptor. I thought that was the one that was going to come in and be the game changer because all you really need is like one disruptive software to really kind of you know blow everything else up. And uh, when it came in, it had all these really cool analytics features, so you could see like which callers were talking during how how much of the of the conversation. And so it would give you like analytics reports that would say, you know, caller A at this number, um, you know spoke for 33% of the conversation and, you know, caller B was 12% or whatever. And it was actually really neat. It had all these, these cool analytics and, and recording options and you could segment out the recordings and things like that. I don't know what ever happened with them. I think they just dropped off the face of the planet or maybe they got acquired and, and slowly just put to pasture because the, the software was working too well, but it wasn't without its glitches still. I mean, it, when it came to, actually being able to hear people or calling in and sitting in a, a conference room, like waiting room with no one there, even though you're on the right line, you know, <laughs> those things still happens. Well, if you guys haven't seen it, definitely check it out is a conference call in real life on YouTube. Oh my gosh. That is funny. Oh, it is great. It is one of my, I've probably watched it a dozen times and it is just so entertaining. And they've done a couple other ones. Like I think they've done uh, flying in real life and a couple other ones over the last couple of years, but um, it, it hits home painfully out. well. It does. It does. And the, to your point, Cole, there, I think WebEx for a while was touting some functionality where you could actually show the engagement of the different users. So if someone was multitasking, you could tell because they weren't spending time on the WebEx screen itself, which was kind of creepy. And it also scared the bejesus out of me because I thought that, you know, my boss was able to tell that I was playing solitaire when I was supposed <laughs> to be paying attention to the all company hands meeting or something. But oh, that would be devastating if those, those types of uh, reportings got out. Uh, who's, who's, who's multitasking. If you're on a phone though, I feel like you could still get yeah. away with it. That would be the, new, that would be the workaround. <laughs> For sure. Oh, sorry. I was multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> well played, Susan. Uh, awesome. Anytime. Well, thanks so much, Susan, for your time. We really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on, and we'll see you next time. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Happy sending.